0: This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Robert Coleman, who is a professor in gynecologic oncology at MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center. So welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me, Pedro. It's great to be back. So Rob, this is uh, obviously a a very important trial that we're going to be talking about today, the PAOLA trial. And first, I would like for you to um, share with us some of the background details regarding why is this uh, an important study? Why is this relevant to the field of uh, gynecologic oncology? Sure. So, you know, if you
1: think about it, right now our frontline options for patients with a, with primary ovarian cancer are to treat with chemotherapy, and then there's this decision that needs to be made about Bevacizumab or not. And, you know, in the United States, that um, is – is now approved um, without really restrictions on the types of patients. In other parts of the world, there are other kind of caveats or restrictions placed on which patients uh, the drug is for. So if you think about it, you know, those are post-patients that are getting a, um, a triplet therapy uh, with the expectations and the outcomes that we've seen from ICON-7 and GOG-218. So the concept was that, you know, we know that uh, that. Uh Drugs, uh, the drugs, the PARP inhibitors, work in, in patients who carry uh, germline and tumor uh, mutations in BRCA uh, one and two. We know it probably works um, fairly extensively in patients who have evidence of wild type for BRCA, but homologous recombination deficiency. And so, um, when you look at this across the spectrum of patients that are treatment naive, this we think this is about half of the ovarian cancer patient population. So the concept here was to say, okay, listen, can we augment our? Um, can we can we leapfrog another advance on top of the uh, bevacizumab? And so, uh, investigators um, put forward
0: this trial um, to look at that. To look at that question. So, this trial, and just uh, for those who may not be familiar, this trial is evaluating the integration of maintenance uh, olaparib uh, with bevacizumab in patients with high-grade serous carcinoma who have completed platinum-based chemotherapy and bevacizumab. So, can you tell us about? The relevance of BRCA mutant status, as well as the homologous uh, recombination repair deficiency, in ovarian tumors. Right. So we've known um, for a long time, uh,
1: since really the integration of PARP into PARP inhibitors into the recurrent setting, that tumors that identify with deficiency in this mechanism, which is has uh, has high fidelity for repair of double-strand DNA breaks, when those conditions are present in the tumor these PARP inhibitors seem to work quite well. um, And so, as you know, the indications started in the recurrent setting, and then they kind of migrated into better uh, or to patients with less prior treatment and now ultimately into the frontline setting. So this homologous recombination deficiency status that we're able to identify can be identified and can be be characterized by uh, lots of different ways. The one you mentioned already, BRCA1-2 um, mutation in the tumor, is the, you know, the principal one. We also know there are other genes that are responsible for homologous recombination repair. And so if we know that some of the mutations in those genes, even if BRCA1 and 2 are wild type, that there's some um, sensitivity to PARP inhibitors. And then the ultimate kind of nonspecific loss of heterozygosity type of uh, genome-wide uh, aberration can also appear to profile patients who would respond apartment inhibitors. So we've got those three kind of conditions um, happening, and, th- and they they're overlap. So, you know, BRCA patients tend to have HRD, or almost always have HRD-positive types of tumors, depending on the assay. And so um, we would expect those
0: uh, patients, at least half of them, to be potentially relevant candidates for BERT. So, Rob, the, uh, now on the study design of the POLA mm-hmm. trial... And the uh, primary endpoint. For those who may not be familiar with the details, can you explain uh, those uh, for us?
1: Yeah. So this is a relatively straightforward trial. Um, took patients who had, um, you know, who were identified as ovarian cancer, um, having had surgery, either in the frontline setting or as a adjuvant therapy, and then um, were dispositioned to receive bevacizumab during that during that treatment. So it took those patients, and then when they finished their frontline therapy, then they were randomized to placebo or to Olaparib, um, and it was a two-to-one randomization for the rib arm uh, with the control arm essentially being Paclitaxel, Carboplatinum, Bevacizumab, followed by Bevacizumab uh, with under the normal indication, so dose and indication just like we saw in 218, and, uh, which is now kind of
0: the global uh, approval standard for that drug. So they just simply added it. And now, I, um, I noted that the, the study that accrued a total of uh, 806 patients, the, the majority of patients had ovarian cancer, all were um, stage 3 and 4, uh, and over 90% were serous uh, carcinoma. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the distribution of BRCA mutants versus non-mutants, and, and why would this be important? So I think that, um,
1: you know, when we look across the ovarian cancer um, spectrum, uh we know that the germline carriage of, uh, or the prevalence of, of, of BRCA mutation 1, 2 in the germline is about 15, 17, 18 percent. And then we know in the tumor we get another 5 to 7 percent. But if you, if you take patients who've responded to treatment, you start to enrich for this platinum sensitive kind of category of patient. And so we've seen in all of the trials where they have done the randomization at the point of completion of chemotherapy and taking only responders or patients who are NED, that you have an enrichment, really, of these BRCA um, uh, phenotypes in the, or genotypes in the tumors. And so, again, and we saw here that it was about a 30-70 split, so 30 positive and 70 wild type, uh, again, showing some enrichment for that, um, for that uh, genotype.
0: And then um, another point of interest, obviously, is the rate of complete cytoreduction, or R0, mm-hmm. in the olaparib arm versus the placebo arm. So uh, I'm interested in, in, the, in the percentage of patients in each group that had no evidence of disease at completion of mm-hmm. primary therapy. Right. So
1: so, the, um, uh, so this is a, a little bit of a complication. Um, I mean, not a, it's just a complicated topic to understand because the, the, the trial eligibility was response to treatment or NED. And that becomes important when half or more than half of your patients have complete gross resections at surgery. Right, so they don't have anything to, to monitor. So in, the, in, the, in this, uppa- this particular trial allowed patients to have either upfront or interval surgery, and it was about a 50-50 split. So the, from the primary surgery candidates, the patients who had no gross residual was about 60%, and then the patients who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy was about 70%. So when you looked at the patients um, who were complete responders, that meaning that they had the disease after surgery and then responded to it, it was only a, you know, it's, it's about a little less than half of the patients who actually had measurable disease. But if you looked at the total patients that had nothing that was visible on CAT scan when they went into the study, it was about 75%. Okay, but that included about half the patients that mm. actually had no
0: disease when they finished their surgery. Yeah. Um, and what was the, the, the median duration of treatment in the olaparib arm versus the, the placebo? And, and then also the, the median follow-up for each arm.
1: Yeah, so the duration of treatment kind of mimics the trial design, right? So that the um you know the intent was to give the bevacizumab for the indication. So um the way that the data are presented in the trial, you have to actually kind of back calculate so that because the bev was started with the second cycle of therapy um with the chemotherapy. So they that those cycles actually aren't included in mm-hmm. the duration of exposure. But it was very similar. It was actually the very close in both arms of the trial, about 11 about 11 months of exposure for the bevacizumab, and then of course in the elaborative arm, also linked to the primary indication of two years of therapy, uh, was about 15 um, months in the placebo arm and about 17 months in the um, in the combination arm. And then the duration of follow-up is about two years. So um, again, we're getting about you know we'll see as time goes on that the longer follow-up will allow the curves to be a little better characterized. But at least up to the median now, and for PFS, which is the primary endpoint, um, we'll, we have decent data. To, to report the data.
0: So exactly. So getting to the primary endpoint, and let's get to the study results. Uh, was there a difference in progression-free survival when adding olaparib as maintenance therapy?
1: Yeah. So the primary endpoint was investigator-assessed PFS, and there's, um, you know, that's important to to characterize because the alternative would be to use the blinded, independent central review, radiology review, which is um, some other trials have have used. But in this particular trial, it was assessed by the investigator, but a placebo-controlled trial. And we basically saw that the reduction in the hazard for progression across the entire exposure interval was reduced by about 40%. 40, 40 so it has a ratio of 0.59. Um, and on the median, at that point in time, it was about 22 months in the combo arm and 16.6 months in the in the placebo arm with the bepsizumab. So, so um,
0: you know, I would consider this as clinically meaningful and, um, and an important finding. So – Interested in the key sensitivity analyses on um, primary endpoints and secondary efficacy endpoints, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that. And also, do we have any data on overall survival?
1: Yeah, good question. So these were presented at the, at the meeting, um, and uh, they were available in the supplementary materials. So most people probably don't aren't aware that, this, that the secondary endpoint of this trial is actually PFS-2 which is the time from randomization to the progression following the next line of therapy. And that's often used in Europe um, in Europe many European studies as a surrogate for overall survival, with the intent being that as each line of therapy, you know, essentially we see a slight collapse in the PFS curves, but it's given us some intuition um, that, the, um, that the benefit that was seen after the first exposure is still extending into the next line of therapy, even though we don't control with what that is. Mm-hmm. And so basically that's what they said. I mean, um, we showed that, the, that it wasn't quite as big in, t- in terms of the magnitude on the PFSs, which is what we normally see, but um, it was still extensive. I- the combination arm was still a little bit better. And then other endpoints that, that I think that uh, you know are important that, w- that we frequently see in these trials is like the time to the initiation of the next line of therapy. So there's usually about a month or two when patients get assessed, And then the question is, you know, can do they start therapy right away or do they wait a little bit longer? And what we see is basically that the effect of the PFS is extended into the next line of therapy. um, And then I think importantly, uh, the blinded independent review was basically confirmed what the investigators did. And I think a lot of people get concerned about about investigator assessed endpoints in trials um, because if the you know if they if the investigator thinks that the patient's on placebo or they think they're on the, contr- the experimental arm, they may respond to the, in, in the, uh, the evaluation of the CAT scans differently, you know, with a little bit of bias being there. Um, in a placebo-controlled trial, um, you know, that's, minim- that's at least minimized to some extent, but because we know patients have side effects with these drugs – Sometimes you know the investigators will believe that the patient's on there, so it's always important, uh, for especially for regulatory purposes for the agencies, the FDA and the EMEA, that the um, that they have a sensitive analysis, which is to collect the CAT scans and review them uh, independently to see that they confirm. And they did, so it was I think a very robust thing. So I mentioned that the follow-up was only 24 months, so OS data at this point is really immature, and that
0: will se- certainly be something we'll be looking at down the road. Okay. And then uh, what about a subgroup analysis on biomarkers? Uh, do we have any data from that?
1: So, you know, we did look at a, a number of um, of uh, subgroups uh, because they're important. You know, age is important. Stage is important. Um, the type of surgery they had and the outcome of that surgery is important. We know they all, the all of these features essentially have prognostic value to outcomes like PFS, so they're important to include it in a subgroup analysis. And remember, <coughs> the subgroups are there to... Evaluate the robustness of the primary endpoint. They're not there to assess the independent value of that subgroup. Lots of that typically gets confused. In other words, they'll look at here and say, well, look, in, this in the complete responders group, it was a really good result, but not as good as in the partial responders. Therefore, it doesn't work in partial responders. That's not the how this is interpreted. If you look at the, um, at the what's in the paper and what's in the, uh, in the presentation, you can see that across all the subgroups, there's overlapping of the estimates in their 95% confidence intervals which suggests that the that the effect that was seen in the primary trial um uh, is very robust and a, and apply to all of these uh subgroups.
0: And um w- was there a difference between the BRCA mutants versus non-mutants in progression free survival? And also was there a difference in progression free survival when evaluating the HRD status?
1: Yeah, so that's a it's always a, a very good um, uh, kind of comment because uh, we break the <laughs> we break these down uh, into all these different subgroups and then we provide the curves with the 95% confidence intervals and that again it leads to potentially some some m- uh, misleading conclusions. But we would expect that um, that the role of a PARP inhibitor in a patient population that carries the best or the highest likelihood to benefit from it. In other words, a tumor-associated bracket mutation would have a very robust outcome, and that's what we saw. We saw that the um, that the uh, the media the curves were split a little bit further. But interestingly, if you look at these carefully, remember I told you that the control arm of the whole study was 16.6 months, and in this m- in this PFS based on the tumor positive group, the control arm and no PARP inhibitor, it's 21.7 months. So what that tells you is that is that BRCA status is prognostic. Patients with that mutation do better regardless of whether they got a PARP inhibitor or not. So it's prognostic. Okay, so that tells you something about the, you know, how you would generate a hypothesis about why you would want to potentially use it in a patient population that has this better prognosis. So that's that's essentially what they showed. And and again, the hazard ratio was very much in line with what we saw in SOLA1, um, where, where essentially uh, elaparib was given uh, against placebo in, in brca um patients who carries uh, tumors with brca mutation. And so I think we felt that that was, you know, kind of again a robust finding and we expected that in patients that did not have the mutation that the effect would be less robust. And so that's essentially what these curves showed. Um, HRD again is a measure of the compliancy of the homologous recombination machinery. It's most broken in the BRCA patients, but we know that there are other non-brca mutation or non-brca uh, genes that are mutated in other aberrations in the cancer cells that can lead to this deficient state. And when you look at the HRD status in the study, they showed essentially a curve. It looks very similar to the BRCA uh, curves this, uh, in terms of the has ratio being 0.33 and uh, the medians being essentially the same number. But that's something you would expect because there's such a strong effect for BRCA. Mm-hmm. And that obviously is dominating, um, you know, half, over half of the observations in this HRD status. And I think what, you know, I think most people cause most people the most co- um, confusion is that when they looked at just the wild-type patients, so not BRCA, not HRD, so this other category of patients, which, um, you know, is about 40-something percent of the overall, 45 percent of the overall group, they really didn't see any difference in the curves. They are really flat next to each other. But I don't want people to take away from the saying, well, this doesn't work in the HRD-negative cohorts because that's, that really wasn't the how the analysis was done. It's, again, to look at the robustness of the primary endpoint. And so um, I think that this, along with the other studies that are going to be uh, up for FDA review this year, there's going to be some interest in understanding how the regulatory agency looks at data like this, knowing that these are not formal hypothesis testing uh, types of, s- of analyses and um, and opine whether or not uh, the drug should receive approval in the all-comer population, which
0: was what was enrolled. And Rob, I was wondering if you can tell us a little bit about the complications profile in both groups.
1: Yeah, you know, it's. Um, I think we're reassured now. This is probably the largest study we've had with this combination, but we've 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 had several studies in the recurrent situation uh, recurrent um, c- uh, setting uh, that have shown that the side effects really align with the individual drugs. So we see GI toxicity that's the most commonly seen with the PARP inhibitors as as kind of uh, Representing itself here, and with bevacizumab, we see hypertension, proteinuria, and those types of um, adverse events. The overall rate of them um, is relatively similar. I think it was well tolerated. I think we've gotten much better at understanding how to manage the side effects of PARP inhibitors. So, um, uh, but I think that you know, true to form, you know, with PARP inhibitors, there's more opportunity for dose interruptions and dose reductions. Those were seen at a higher rate. I think what's really interesting is that the control arm, going back to that control arm again, is that if you were to compare this control arm to ICON-7 and 218, it is way different. Hmm. We've gotten so much better at being able to, um, to uh, you know, uh, manage uh, that drug, right. uh, in, you know, in our, in our patients. So, so um, but yeah, and the, you know, th- I think we they were expected, nothing uh,
0: unusual um, and essentially additive. So Rob, obviously, the question that everybody has in mind after these major uh, trials, uh, and, and no, no one better than to to ask an, an expert like you, how do we apply the results of <laughs> this study to our everyday practice?
1: Oh, that's so easy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is going to be tough. So you know, um, h- you know the. Uh, um I think ultimately the way that we o- we're going to apply them is going to really come boil down to uh, what is actually approved, because um, if we have a restriction on these drugs uh, in combination, uh, then they'll most likely follow the indication. Um, right now, we know that in-maintenance therapy is underutilized in the United States, despite the fact that we've had Bevacizumab in the books for, you know, a decade, um, and uh, we've had inhibitors uh, uh, available to us, at least in the BRCA patient populations now, for more than you know 14 months, the, um, the overall utility of, of maintenance is still relatively low. So I think what we're going to see is that um, decisions are going to need to be made early based on genotyping uh, and, and that being the patient's germline and their tumor. And I think that's going to start to this this change in our approach to this disease. And I think if you're a a person who believes very strongly that patients should receive Bevacizumab because of the data, then what this study is adding to that, your particular um, therapy management strategy is going to be that if they're, you know, HRT positive or if they're BRCA positive or if you're a believer in all comers, then you'll add it at the time of maintenance because you have already made the decision to start Bevacizumab. But if you don't believe Bevacizumab, and this study doesn't really apply to you, right? Because it doesn't evaluate using um, the Olaparib only in maintenance in this all-comer patient population, the missing third arm, mm-hmm. right? So that was, so that's going to be a, a, a subject of debate. And I think, um, But I think that the decision for how PALA-1 is going to uh, impact your personal therapy is going to be made early. It's going to be after the patient finished surgery and what your personal beliefs are as to the role of evacizumab.
0: Rob, it's been absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much for sharing uh, this really valuable information uh, with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me.